hit me. From Studio P in Sausalito, the home of the hit, it's time for... Suckatash. Yes, Suckatash Chats, the original comedy soundcast featuring interviews from comedy... Soundcast. Soundcasters, comedians, comedian soundcasters, and other showbiz folks. And here's your host, internationally recognized comedy soundcast soundcaster, Mark Hershaw. Thank you, Bill Haywatt. Yes, it's me, Mark Hershon, your host in Ripstop Nylon for Epi 152 of Succotash, the comedy soundcast, Soundcast. This is an installment of Succotash Chats, rather than clips, and our special guest this episode, Bob Garfield, host of not only NPR's Peabody award-winning show, On the Media, a correspondent for All Things Considered, plus a journalist and writer for such publications as The New York Times, Playboy, Atlantic, and Sports Illustrated. Those are magazines. And if you don't know what those are, go ask your parents. But he's also hosting a new soundcast called The Genius Dialogues. It's a really interesting series where Bob chats with people who have received MacArthur Foundation grants. If you're unfamiliar, the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation is a fascinating philanthropic organization that gives out a bunch of dough to people that deserve it. I'll I'll give you a few more details before Bob and I get into our chat. Speaking of which, here's a taste of our upcoming convo. The, uh, that link that they all have that the, the MacArthur grant is, uh, I think, kind of a clever way to, to identify them as genius of some stripe, which is, which is great. Um, the, how did you, uh, do you have some connection with the, the fellowship to get these people lined up? Yes, I w- I'm the only person who's ever won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship four times. <laughs> it's, an, it's an astonishing achievement, I got to tell you, because nobody else has even won it twice. <laughs> uh, I won it once, um, for um, journalism, once for uh, my ability to unscrew um, <laughs> jars. Uh, parallel parking, I got the only MacArthur ever <laughs> That's for achievement in parallel parking. That's great. And the, other, the other one I didn't get at all. I, <laughs> I bought that one. So, so, so because of the four-time win, they just said, well, you should be the person to talk to all these people. Obviously. That's exactly what happened. All right, that uh, little snippet there, it's kind of like one of those trailers you sometimes see for a movie where there are scenes that then don't show up in the film because later on in the actual interview, I'm, I've edited out some of that fumbly talk that I did uh, in the final version. So that special little trailer for you. You know, I think this is the first time that we're featuring a show, The Genius Dialogues, that is exclusively only available through Audible. You can't currently get it on iTunes or Stitcher, for instance, and I think it's going to be interesting to see how this might start to impact the soundcast industry as more major players start to provide content away from the iTunes mainstay. We'll see what happens. We have a few other audio morsels for you in this episode, including a double dose of our Burst O'Durst segment with political comedian and social commentator Will Durst. I may have a few of your emails and tweets to share when we peek inside the tweet sack a little later. And we even have a couple of extra surprises thrown into the closing credits for the show, like some of those fantastic Marvel movies. I figure, why not? If they can do it, so can I. All right. The whole kit and caboodle is brought to you by our sponsor, Henderson's Pants. 
Hello, friends. In this time of political unrest, both in the U.S. of A. and abroad, Bill Haywatt here to offer you a reassuring word from our overlords at Henderson's Pants. If you're overwhelmed with the wild ride the current administration has upon us, relief is just a changing room away. Once you slip into a pair of Henderson's new foggy bottom britches, you'll be well on your way to seeing yourself clear of these trying times. Why, you may ask? Well, because Foggy Bottom Bridges let you slip into any closed session on Capitol Hill, raucous caucus, or smoke-filled back room with the confidence of the majority party. You'll fit right in with that flushed look that comes from spending other people's money and an enhanced derriere that is just perfect for butting into other people's business. And right now is the perfect time to shop for your Foggy Bottom Bridges. Thanks to an executive order and a flurry of tweets from you-know-who, these pants are 15% off until sanity returns to the Oval Office. Originally designed for lobbyists, executives from Goldman Sachs, and the waitstaff at Mar-a-Lago, Henderson's Foggy Bottom Bridges are available at your nearest gerrymandered polling place. That's Henderson's, makers of empty suits and stuffed shirts since 1929. And now back to... Succotash. Gotta get me a pair of those babies. But for now, here's our first salvo from Mr. Durst. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about Donald J. Trump's presidency, which is keeping staffers and streaming news alert editors busier than a flock of seagulls at low tide. Watch the network television anchors and you can see they're exhausted. That breaking news graphic broke. The new guy is making more missteps than the last place finisher in a drunken hopscotch tournament on cobblestones with a watch cap pulled over his eyes. Every day there's something. Right after firing his FBI director, the Washington Post reported the president shared classified intelligence with two Russian diplomats. But the White House said, relax, trying to convince the country that Mr. Trump was never in possession of any intelligence he could have shared. And increasingly, America is willing to believe it the whole not-in-possession-of-any-intelligence part. In defense of his disclosure of the classified Israeli intel concerning ISIS, Trump claims he can say anything to anybody because as president, he has special powers. Apparently, he was bitten by a radioactive spider. But the biggest and best and beautifulest radioactive spider ever! Now, Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein appointed a special prosecutor to get to the bottom of possible Russian collusion and obstruction of justice, the fastest any president in history has ever been targeted with a special prosecutor. He must be so proud. He's gone from zero to Nixon in less than four months. Next up, the president is scheduled to embark on a nine-day, five-city foreign tour visiting Saudi Arabia, Israel, Belgium, and the Vatican, ending up at the G7 conference in Italy. For a guy who hates to travel and goes off script like church bells in Ireland, what could go wrong? The G7 used to be known as the G8 until Russia was kicked out for annexing Crimea. But now that they've annexed us, looks like they're back in the loop. For Succotash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, I'm Will Durst. Thanks, Will. Another visit from him coming up later in the show. But don't forget that you can always visit everyone's favorite raging moderate at his home site, willdurst.com. 
You can also follow him on Twitter at Will Durst. Let's jump into my Skype visit with Bob Garfield and let me tell you a little about the MacArthur Foundation, which is where he finds the geniuses that give the title, The Genius Dialogues, its meat. All right, I'm quoting from Wikipedia here, so take it with a grain of salt. The John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation is the 12th largest private foundation in the United States. Based in Chicago, the foundation makes grants and impact investments to support nonprofit organizations in Chicago, across the U.S., and in approximately 50 countries. MacArthur reports that it has awarded more than $6 billion since its first grants were given in 1978. The foundation's stated aim is to support quote, creative people, effective institutions, and influential networks building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world, unquote. MacArthur's current grant-making priorities include mitigating climate change, reducing jail populations, decreasing nuclear threats, supporting uh, nonprofit journalism, and funding local priorities in its hometown, Chicago. All right, here's the genius part. The MacArthur Fellows Program, also referred to as, quote, Genius Grants, unquote, makes $625,000 no-strings-attached awards annually to about two dozen creative individuals in diverse fields. The interesting part is that these are not grants you have to apply for. These genius grants, the foundation just awards them out of the blue, which means there must be an agent of the foundation checking stuff out all over the place to find geniuses worthy of the grant. Kind of like, it's kind of like Santa Claus, except with a big bag of money instead of toys. I'm going to pretend they just haven't found Succotash yet, but my day is coming. Let's find out more. Here's my interview with Bob Garfield. I'll pop in a couple of excerpts from the Genius Dialogues along the way. Hello, Bob. How are you? I'm Mark Hershon. Nice to meet you, Mark. Likewise. Likewise. Uh, welcome to, uh, welcome to Succotash the comedy podcast podcast, uh, where we actually talk to podcasters that don't necessarily do comedy, but you actually seem to have quite a sense of humor, at least the uh, episodes of your new podcast that I've been enjoying on, uh, on audible.com. Yeah, I guess you could say I have a sense of humor <laughs> or, or another way of putting it is that I may, um, you know, dick. <laughs> Which, uh, sort of starts to get into one of the things I want to ask you about doing a show for Audible, but uh, let's uh, let's introduce you to uh, to my listeners. And uh, again, I'll be using parts of our interview for um, uh, some coverage I'll be doing in Huff Post about your new Genius Dialogues podcast. This new podcast just launched, but you have been around for uh, for quite a while in the media. Yeah, well, let's start with that I am the oldest living American. <laughs> And, you know, I, I don't know, when you were in college, did you take any chemistry? Uh, no, I did not. Well, well, I did. And I mean, just to give you a notion of how far back this was, uh, you know, the periodic table of elements? Sure. When I was in school? Yeah. 29 elements. <laughs> Zinc was a rumor. So, yeah, so I've been around for quite a while and... I don't know, I started in journalism in 1977. Okay. Yeah. And where was that in uh, when you got started? Well, I had my first internship in the spring of 77 uh, in State College, Pennsylvania. And then I had my first 
professional newspaper job in uh, Reading, Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. In that, that fall, and it was a, a bad paper, <laughs> and <laughs> there were a lot of colorful characters, and uh, it was it was quite an experience. It was like you know on the verge of being, I would say, Fellini esque. <laughs> How well newspapers I think have always had sort of an odd quality to them. I uh, I've been an editorial cartoonist for a small weekly paper in uh, Central California, uh, the Half Moon Bay Review, for about a decade and a half, and it's a very quirky sort of uh, proposition. Yeah, hence actually my attraction to newspaper work. I realized that uh, I I actually I realized from the first day of my first the first morning of my internship, that it was a newsroom filled with, you know, the people who were in the newsroom because they were fundamentally untrained and untrainable for more adult work. <laughs> and I'm like, I can do that. You know, I can dress poorly and swear out loud. So sure, you know, I, I seem to be qualified. <laughs> uh, when did you move from writing into, uh, I assume, radio, since podcasting is a relatively new medium? Yeah, well, so I, I've never, I, I've always done a little bit of everything, right? I, uh, I've been a reporter and a columnist since 1977. My first radio experience was 19, let's say late, late 85. Uh, and it, it started with a bang. I had done a piece, I've gone hunting with my in-laws and uh, it was kind of a, they were Catholic, Western Pennsylvania, sort of blue collarish people, hunters. You know, they had just tons of guns and ammo and and uh, orange clothing, and uh, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I didn't uh, I didn't kill animals. I I did watercolors. But so we I. Uh, I went with them, and it was such a like a filter fish out of water situation <laughs> that I came back and wrote about it for an op-ed for the New York Times, which was a huge thing for me. It would have been my first uh, New York Times op-ed, and they bought it and they laughed. Oh, <laughs> oh, Bob, you are a caution. <laughs> then uh, a couple of days before it was to run, they called me and said, "No, we're not going to do it. Too many religion jokes. We just really." There are people here who feel uncomfortable with it. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so heartbreaking. Oh. So for whatever reason, I called uh, the executive producer of All Things Considered, a show I didn't even really listen to very much at the time. <laughs> and uh, his name was Art Silverman. And so, you know, it was all Jews considered anyway. <laughs> and I, I went down, I read it. And that was on the radio that night. Wow. And that's began a career of, it's now in, I don't know, 15, 30 plus years. That's, uh, that's quite a, quite a career. I mean, you've, uh, you worked for, um, for all things considered for how long? A dozen years? Something like that. 12 years, I think. Yeah. But I, I've never had only one job. I mean, once I left the, the, let's say, uh, once I got to Washington in 1982, I always had multiple gigs. Yeah, and uh, and starting in in 85, one of them was radio. I also did quite a bit of television and 
never stop writing for magazines, never stop writing for newspapers. Um, uh, you know, I'm a multi-mediocrity. <laughs> uh, what was uh, what was your upbringing like that you uh, you got into writing as as a career? I had an ordinary middle class uh, upbringing in a very well-to-do ghetto of uh, Philadelphia and uh, suburban Philadelphia, that is, and. Had some family uh, crisis in around the time of my senior year, and neglected college, and kind of a, at the last minute went to Penn State, which was uh, was fine, um, and uh, I decided to be an English major because. I like to read books. Okay. <laughs> but I took the writing option because I imagine my, I imagine that as somehow being, yeah, I don't know what I imagined, but uh, <laughs> it, uh, I, you know, I, I wrote a lot of stuff, but still never imagined being in the newspaper business until the very, very end of my college career. I put out a humor magazine, which was um, not funny, and <laughs> I. Um, how long did you more do financially that? successful? How long did but you do that for? I did almost the entire four years. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I started as a freshman. It had been revived. It had been this venerable old publication at Penn State, but it fallen out of uh, print in maybe fifteen years before I went to school. And some graduate students revived it, and I started working on it from the beginning of the revival. And I ended up very quickly as the editor and. Uh, put it out for four years. Okay. So uh, I imagine I might be in magazines, although I didn't really know what that means or how it worked. <laughs> and uh, one of my, my my mentor professor forced me to take a newspaper internship, which I did, and kind of blundered into that, that situation. And I really did know on the first day of my internship that that's how I was going to spend my life. Interesting. I, I love, love newsrooms. That's great. Um, let's talk uh, ab about your new podcast, uh, The Genius Dialogues. Uh, where did the concept come from? I think what happened is that three years ago, I was having uh, coffee with my wife at a crappy deli four miles from my house. <laughs> and she was talking about, at that time, I was doing on the media which is a pretty large national show with an audience of a million and a half and uh, 450 stations plus a whole ton of downloads. Yeah. So I was doing that. I was doing Lexicon Valley at Slate, which is a, a podcast about language with my friend Mike Volo, who's, who was really his baby, and I was kind of the Ed McMahon sidekick. <laughs> and uh, and I, I was just toying around with the idea of doing something uh, – else and in the medium and I don't know during the course of the conversation my wife mentioned uh, geniuses and I thought oh my goodness you know it was it was it, it, it hit me fully formed as my ideas often do hmm. I understood instantaneously what, what it should be and then I started overthinking it and imagined it to be something different than what it wound up to be in, in the end, but I imagine this kind of multimedia platform, a little video, a little audio, 
a little text and all, all sorts of, you know, so uh, part ebook, part podcast, part YouTube. That was yeah. my original notion. But it got pared down a whole lot to being these, you know, relatively long form interviews with people who are quite remarkable, but who for uh, whatever reason don't get a whole lot of attention. Yeah, they get a lot of attention. I, I should say when they when they get their MacArthur grants because it's a windfall of six hundred fifty thousand dollars that they have no inkling is about to take place, and they get a phone call one day and it's like holy moly! So that gets a lot of media attention once a year. But as to their actual work and to their lives, their yeah. development, their process, their anything, that is. It's completely opaque to the public. Well, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Sorry about the the, on the Kardashians to them. The uh, that link that they all have that the the MacArthur grant is, uh, I, I think, kind of a clever way to to identify them as genius of some stripe, which is which is great. Do you have some connection with the the fellowship to get these people lined up? Yes, I w- I'm the only person who's ever won the MacArthur Genius Fellowship four times. <laughs> It's and it's an astonishing achievement, I got to tell you, because nobody else has even won it twice. <laughs> uh, I won it once um, for um, journalism, once for uh, my ability to unscrew um, jars. <laughs> uh, parallel parking, I got the only MacArthur ever <laughs> for achievement in parallel parking. That's great. And the other. The other one I didn't get at all. I, I, I about that one. So, so, so because of the four-time win, they just said, well, you should be the person to talk to all these people. Obviously. That's exactly what happened. So why MacArthur? No, I had no connection. But, I, you know, as I'm sitting there having this, just working this idea out with my wife, and you know, I, I realized that we, if we're going to talk to geniuses, we've got somebody out there selecting them for me, right? right. They, yeah. <laughs> They do a lot of due diligence before they give 25 different people uh, <laughs> two-thirds of a million dollars every year. Yeah. So that part was covered. All I had to do was find the ones who uh, were good at talking out loud. And <laughs> that's the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do you do like a pre-interview or how, how do you determine who's going to be, be on the show? Because uh, I've only had a chance to listen to a, a couple of the shows so far. Uh, the first one. Um, which is with Phil Barron. Phil Barron. That seemed to be the first one I was able to find uh, when I was looking to download. So, but it yeah. was but it was very interesting. I mean, he sounded like a guy that had a good a good voice for a genius. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, he had a lot of um, energy. He was an energetic talker. So you know, you want people who have a a good story to tell and the ability to tell it and. You know, it also helps to have somebody who's a reliable narrator of his own or her own life and work. I mean, that, that helps. You don't want someone like me who's completely scattered. <laughs> uh, so uh, <clears throat> uh, Phil was a fascinating guy. You know, I'm glad we chose him. It's it's a little difficult. It's more than just, you know, what their speaking voice is, right? Sure. There's got to be subjects that I can somehow not grasp because I don't grasp any of them, but somehow <laughs> be interested in and uh, cobble together enough naive questions to get some smart answers. People were requested during the war to bring in anything they saw that had mold 
and it was evaluated to see how much penicillin it could make. I mean, back then it was so precious, the penicillin, that the soldiers, after they would take it, they would collect the urine and then recycle the penicillin from their urine. And I believe that the final strain that won was a mold from a, a watermelon that a little old lady found in like Indiana. In the history of drug discovery, I gather the penicillin story is the rule rather than the exception. Just dumb luck followed by a lot of trial and error. Phil, benzodiazepines. Benzodiazepines are another serendipity story. Tranquilizers or sedatives? Yeah. The precise accident was Leo Sternbach, he had his bench top full of chemicals that he needed to do a lab cleanup. And there was a couple hundred milligrams of a crystalline substance that he submitted just as part of the lab cleanup to the pharmacologist. And the next morning when the pharmacologist tested it, pretty much everything was in an uproar because they had never seen a compound having this type of sedative property. And from that, Roche built an entire franchise of more than a dozen different benzodiazepines having wide-ranging effects from anti-epileptic activity to anti-depression, sedative activity, muscle relaxant. I mean, benzodiazepines are used for more than a dozen indications. Help me here. What did the pharmacologists do to understand that this crystalline molecule was going to offer these benefits? At the beginning, it was just giving it to a rodent and seeing how it reacted. So you got a lab rat and say, oh, here, taste this crystal. Yes. And the lab rat, which had been anxious, takes the crystal and goes, whoa, dude. And from that, an entire class of drugs emerged. That is the case. And you might be surprised to know that in neuroscience, it still is often the case because we don't have great models for the brain. If you want to develop a drug for schizophrenia, you'll have a mouse swim through a pool of milk. Or pain might be how long does a mouse or a rat stand on a hot plate before they get off. There aren't very good assays that you can use in a Petri dish to understand what goes on in the complex organism of, a, of even a rat or a mouse. It all just so defies our assumptions about how advanced these sciences are. We have electron microscopes and the whole human genome, and we're hearing radio waves from the origin of the universe, but we're still putting rats on hot plates. And to a surprising degree, we're still dependent on substances from the natural world, which is where you come in. Often nature evolves natural products for its own purposes, which are not to cure cancer or remove your headache. So you need organic chemistry to make the natural product better for human use. Or if nature doesn't provide enough of that compound to begin with, you need a method by which you can produce it from simple petrochemical starting materials, which are, are abundant. And see if also I can do a little, you know, armchair psychology along the way and, and just make sure that uh, some fairly arcane concepts come out in a form of English that I can comprehend. And if I can, anybody can. So that, that's a good, uh, good measuring, uh, measuring stick, I suppose. And then uh, James Randi was the, uh, the other mm. uh, episode I got a chance to listen to. Uh, and that was fascinating because, of course, he's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of notoriety of, of geniuses. People know who he is. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, <clears throat> I, I found both uh, both interviews uh, really pretty fascinating. And I wanted to ask you, because they're, they're two very different people, but what, what do you think the appeal of geniuses is 
in terms of listeners or or to take the show genius that's currently on tv watching them i think they it seems to be a topic of intense interest for people and what why do you think that is i suspect it has something to do with the fact that they're geniuses (laughs) (laughs) you really do have the ability to crystallize my questions into succinct answers 40 years of journalism as, you're really, you've, you've really figured to it out. Still things to their essence, Mark, <laughs> is really what it is. Um, why, well, first of all, the founding premise of this show is that in spite of the fact that they're geniuses, in spite of the fact that they have done uh, remarkable things, remarkable achievements, uh, all for the benefit of mankind in some way or another. I mean, that MacArthur isn't just looking for Brilliance. They're looking for brilliance overlapping the common wheel. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's a lot of, in, uh, among the laureates are a lot of environmentalists and educators and public interest lawyers and artists. So, you know, they, they definitely have a, um, a do-gooder slant to them, right? So just imagine this this reservoir of minds who have done amazing things, all redounding to the benefit of society in one way or another. Uh, And that's kind of cool. But as I was beginning to say, I never quite got there. As a society, we are so obsessed with celebrities and athletes Mm -hmm. and politicians. Somehow, in spite of the fact that these people are geniuses, if it weren't for the $600,000 uh, awards, nobody would ever know they exist. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you stop by somebody on the street and start talking about geniuses, you might be able to get their attention. But, I, you know, I, it, it, it was not really a big niche. Hmm. In, it's, I think, just kind of a coincidence that the genius series on TV about the world's most famous, history's most famous geniuses happens to correspond with the genius dialogues. But, you know, I don't think it's a real, surprisingly, I think, not that big a, a category of inquiry. Interesting, because it, it seems to me that, I mean, there are certainly fictional characters like Sherlock Holmes and things like that that sort of uh, uh, display a certain type of genius. And I think um, that, I don't know, maybe people are just fascinated. Again, it's perhaps just my idea, but it seems like there, there's a humanity that you, your show brings out that people go, oh, he, the guy's a genius. Of course, he got six hundred thousand dollars. So what? He's real smart. So, what? but I think when they fi- start hearing, wow, this guy really has a, a life, and you start to kind of peel back the layers of where they came from, and like in, in the in Phil's case, the idea of this sort of weird, sort of detached family life he grew up with, right? Where uh, yeah, he said he was raised by wolves. And he, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not far off. It was a peculiar. <laughs> family environment. I, yeah. I, the, the point that came up where he was, he discovered at the age of 19, he was declared to be legally blind and had no idea yeah. that he could barely see is just sort of, it's like almost like you could hear people, you could imagine people listening to the, to, to that content going, wow, these, these are just real people. They just, they've found this one thing that they, they excelled in. And or this yeah. one avenue well, I, of study. Wait, n- not to suggest that he's some sort of idiot savant. He's not that. Right. I mean, right, he's right. not Rain Man. No, no, no. <laughs> but he's a regular guy. He right? is a regular guy, and he has super weird childhood. Yeah. 
And just, I mean, through grit, happenstance, and, um, uh, and an enormous amount of talent, enormous amount of talent, he happened upon what, what from a distant, from the, the, this side of the history, looks like his destiny. But instead, just it's his thing. He yeah. found his thing. And his thing was organic chemistry. Yeah. Um, my thing is not organic chemistry. <laughs> at, at certain points in the interview, it, it, you can see I'm struggling. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm glad you brought up the part about being legally blind because it, it kind of gets to something else about that show that is a bit different. And uh, when people ask me about Genius Dialogues, I tell them two things. I, I give them, first of all, the, the the riff I gave you, that we're fascinated with celebrities and athletes and politicians, but we give short shrift to people like this whose work is truly a benefit to all of mankind, right? Yeah, so I do that. And I say, but the other thing that the Genius Dialogues is this. Are you familiar with uh, Fresh Air on NPR? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, Terry Gross. Yeah. Okay. Imagine if Terry Gross were a dick. <laughs> and what questions she might ask if she just didn't give a shit about what anyone thought of her. <laughs> and uh, that's a little something I bring into the genius dialogues. I don't do it just for, you know, a fact, but there, this Phil Barrett was a perfect example. Yeah. <laughs> he tells me, the guy tells me that he was legally blind at 19 and he had no idea. <laughs> and I said to him, so then you're a genius, <laughs> but evidently also a moron. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I, I think it's a I, little bit impertinent, I would say, the show at times. I, and I think that's, uh, to me, I think that's one of the things that, that makes it not just appealing, but puts it solidly in the camp of what a podcast really is. The things you say and the th way you talk about it goes against typical radio, typical television, typical media. The fact that you, you can bald facely, even though you, you know, excuse yourself for it, can call your guest a moron. Uh, the fact that you can you can say the word shit and the, you know and swear you know maybe not interviewing them but certainly in your commentary around the interview uh, is there a certain freedom in that after years of being on these radio shows where you have to watch your language and be careful how you speak and that sort of thing? I don't feel constricted on on the media. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I, you know, we can't use certain swear words because of the FCC, right? So yes. Sometimes I usually don't use them. Sometimes I'll use them and we'll bleep them out or our guests will use them and we have to bleep them out because we don't want 450 stations to be fined. Yes. But uh, there is an NPR-ish, public radio-ish vibe, mm -hmm. I guess, and uh, widely parodied. And the parodies don't ring true to me, but I think they they are right that they're – there are characteristics of public radio that are um, just they're so busy trying to sound like natural people with natural conversation uh, that it doesn't sound natural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't even know if I've captured it quite there, but um, there, there's a sensibility of public radio yeah. that is is um, it's not 
disc jockeys with their really stylized voices. The dub five, the dub dub. Right. It's not that for sure. Yeah. But it's stylized in its way. And uh, so, no, I haven't felt constricted by it, but I did like the idea of being less of a, an interviewer, a formal interviewer. Yeah. With all the gravitas that that's supposed to imply. And someone who's just in a room having a conversation as if we were just in a bar or in a living room. And that's what I was going for, to have these things be conversations, not interviews. And I think that's that that's also something that has become uh, a little bit of the style of the podcast interview. I do the same thing. I mean, I've had people that I, I'm going to interview and they say, well, send me your questions in advance. I say, I don't have any questions to send you in advance. I'm going to get online with you and we're going to have a conversation and whatever comes out of that is going to come out of that. Uh, and they've always been fine with it. It's just that it, it, a lot of people are either authors or there's a lot of comedians I talk to that are so used to having everything set up in advance that when they get to the podcast medium, it suddenly becomes this more informal conversation. Yeah, they can really kill doing four minutes on Kimmel because <laughs> they... <laughs> They are fed the setups and then they can do the jokes. Right? That's right. That's and right. So I can see why comedians would be a little unsettled in this format. <laughs> uh, but as uh, I'm not funny, it's really not an issue for me. <laughs> well, I would take you to task for that. But I, I, I find you uh, not only funny, but uh, a pleasant conversationalist. Um, Absolutely. Uh, do you enjoy the the podcast side of things? Is it different for you or does it feel just like the rest of the audio mediums you've been involved with? Uh, well, I, I got to tell you, it's a shit ton more complicated to do these shows because um, for starters, I have a studio in my house. Mm -hmm. So my commute is like <laughs> across the hall. Yeah, uh, that's pretty nice. And I, I, it's there, there. There are no logistical issues for me to do an on-the-media interview. Uh, you know, a fellow gets used to that over 17 years. And sure. this thing, I go to where the subjects are. We have to rent a mm. set up, and and for for every 35-minute show, we do about mm, let's say five hours wow. of conversation so it's very unpodcast like in that regard it's far more like a produced show yeah uh because well we gather a lot of tape and then we cut it down obviously very dramatically uh i hope you can't hear that when you listen to it i hope it sounds like we just sat down for 35 minutes started and stopped after a half hour but that's not how it works so in that way this it's a lot lot harder and, of course, that means making a million bajillion editorial decisions as you yeah. start carving the thing down. But I really enjoy it. I mean, I really enjoy that part, uh, the the distilling part, uh, something that I don't even do on my own, you know, on, on the media. Yeah. Uh, that's work that's done below my pay grade. <laughs> <laughs> um, in terms of... Uh it being on Audible as opposed to available through iTunes or some of the other uh, outlets, uh, was that a decision that you made? Is there, are there other production entities that are saying, oh, let's do this deal with, with Audible and see what happens? Well, I will tell you a story. It's not much of an interesting one, but I get the idea at that deli where I'm having coffee with my wife 
don't drink coffee at a deli, by the way. It's it's almost always a bad decision. Yeah, it's not never good. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, uh, I, I have a partner in this project. Well, actually, I got in touch with the woman who would become my partner in the project, who I knew from, from digital publishing. And, you know, we started working out this scheme with the multimedia platform and blah, blah, blah. And we went to a major Fortune 50 company that I won't name. Um, that had done other like content stuff mm-hmm. um, in film and walked in and like within two hours, we were having very, very serious talks about them funding us with a whole lot of money. Hmm. And uh, it was like, yes, 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 yes. And we negotiated with them for I don't know, many, many, many months until finally the yes uh, out of the blue became no. Oh. So we thought we had four hundred thousand dollars, and we were. It turned out we were just slightly off. Uh, we overestimated by four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> now it sounds we like my budget. now it sounds like my my podcast budget. <laughs> then we went and did a uh, not GoFundMe, but what's the other crowdfunding site? The first uh, one, uh, Kickstarter. Kickstarter. We did a Kickstarter. Did that wrong. <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Didn't raise enough money even to get the money. It didn't come close to our goal. We were trying to raise, I don't know. It doesn't even matter. So that failed. And then Eric Newsom, who I knew from NPR and who had actually funded the pilot for this show, just because he wanted to see what it would sound like, um, said, well, you know, I'm going over to Audible. Maybe we'll look at it there. Oh, okay. And then uh, after... Twelve and a half years of negotiations with their lawyers. <laughs> we got a we got a deal, so we're at Audible. That's great, and uh, I, for my listeners, because a lot of, a lot of my listeners are podcasters themselves, um, Audible is really a, a kind of a new venue to check out in terms of if you can make a deal with them. Also, Audible is very heavily into the comedy business. They they acquired Rooftop media rooftop comedy and out of san francisco a couple of years ago so the comedy element has become very big for them so comedy podcasters should know uh there's another there's another game in town you're not stuck with just uh, what's been going on the past couple of years and uh i think your show proves that out uh the 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 audio content itself is uh, superb quality which is great. You you mentioned you know you hope nobody can tell how much editing goes in, and I I, I have to say from a from a radio background myself, uh, with the exception with a few uh, maybe uh, microphone things that happen where you, you know, moved a mic or something or that we're speaking in a different room or something like that, you really can't tell. It's very smooth and very well put together. It's a very entertaining show, and um, again, it's called the Genius Dialogues. Uh, the entire first season, I don't know if there will be a second season, perhaps you'll enlighten me, but uh, the entire first season of show seems to be available now for download or for streaming listening. And uh, it's a it's a great new way to get uh, to get these shows, which is which is terrific. So uh, thank you for bringing us the genius dialogues. I think it's a great addition to the 300,000 podcasts currently <laughs> available. <laughs> OK, so maybe there's a bit of a glut. But if you realize, uh, I mean, I'm a student of the media economy. I actually really am. But if uh, if you realize that those 300,000 podcasts 
together in the aggregate are bringing in almost four hundred thousand dollars <laughs> every year. Yeah, it's a media giant. You know, it begins that up. Yeah, it's a dreadnought. <laughs> It's a golden age of podcast content. It really is. It remains to be seen whether this is a golden age of podcasting as as a business, <laughs> as a media category. Yeah. But there's some great stuff out there. There really is. And I, I, it's exciting. I, I mean, I've been doing my show for six years, and the medium has been around since the, the early aughts. And uh, it, was, it was all interviews and guys talking to each other and – a bunch of comedians trying to figure out if they still had a career somewhere. Uh, and it's really turned into an amazing um, uh, array of rate of drama, audio drama, and some amazing journalism that's being done uh, a little bit wild West journalism. Cause I don't know who the editorial voices behind it are, but uh, it's, you can kind of find pretty much anything that you're into. There's, there's more than one podcast for it. Will there be a second season of the genius dialogues? Well, uh, I'm not at liberty to give you the answer to that question. Okay. Uh, not because I'm co uh, <laughs> contractually prohibited, but because I have no fucking idea. <laughs> These are decisions that have not yet been made. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I, I just don't know. I hope so. Uh, I mean, we've gotten good feedback internally about the show. Good. People who hear it seem to be going back for more. It's a it's a difficult thing to measure. At, that's one thing for, for your listeners who are looking at Audible as a potential uh, venue. It you know they don't even like the word podcast because you know it, it, you can't get it on iTunes. Although I think we may be getting some promotional distribution on iTunes just to kind of prime the pump. But it's a it's kind of a walled garden. It's like Netflix or one of these other content aggregators that charges a monthly fee so that you can hear everything they got in their in their uh, uh, inventory yeah and it's, it's a different model than what everybody else is working with so uh, you know I, they're they're moving they're proceeding with energy and they're sparing no resources but they're they're moving with caution. Well, I'm glad they you... learned about the very marketplace that they're kind of inventing as they go along. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the podcast thing because actually I, I started my own uh, miniature campaign about a, I don't know, a year and a half ago to start calling them soundcasts instead of podcasts because I felt we were sort of paying homage to actually a dead technology because they don't really produce the, the iPod anymore <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, but uh, so and, and I think uh, it'll be interesting to see how not just Audible, but some of these other players begin to figure out how to get into the mainstream of streaming audio because uh, there is a little bit of a monopoly going on, but there's all sorts of things that work around it, like Stitcher and some other outlets. So it'll be interesting to see how Audible gets into the game a little bit more completely as uh, as time begins to unfold. Yeah, and you know, I wish them all the best of luck. Um, and the moment they renew for the the second season, I'll, I'll wish them even more luck. <laughs> Well, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it's uh, a little bit later in the evening uh, where you are than where I am, so I appreciate you taking that time. Uh, but I will uh, uh, encourage folks to listen to uh, uh, G the Genius Dialogues. Uh, Bob Garfield, anything else you want to tell my, my listeners that they should maybe look out for in some of the episodes that you've got out there? Yeah, uh, thank you. I I'd love to do that. You mentioned Phil Barron, who's the uh, kind of the medicine man. He goes out and synthesizes 
molecules that otherwise can only be found in like the most remote places in nature that are extremely useful, especially for pharmaceuticals. Um, so, I mean, it, it, the work he's done has been phenomenal. And you mentioned the amazing Randy. I was sleeping in class mm -hmm. because I had already read the lesson and most of the textbook in advance, and I knew what was coming up. And uh, we had a bit of a conference. They decided that uh, I would be dubbed a child prodigy. I was given a special beige card the size of a regular business card, which had a number on it that any truant officer could call if he intercepted me during school hours. It was the police department, and they would tell him, oh, no, he doesn't have to be in school. You were like a documented whiz kid. <laughs> exactly. What was the first trick you ever learned? Well, interesting question. I'm glad you asked that, sir. It was taught to me by Harry Blackstone, Sr., ah. the great Harry Blackstone. Wait, I no, I knew from Justin Weinstein's documentary about you, An Honest Liar, that you had been influenced by Harry Blackstone. He oh, taught yes. you your first trick? Yes. Oh, yes. He used to come to the Casino Theater on Queen Street. Since I had the freedom of the streets and I had my little truancy card in my pocket, I was able to go and see matinees because they were only 12 cents. I'd never seen a magician before. Never. I leaned on that balcony, almost fell out of it. Harry Blackstone stood on the stage and gestured, and a young lady walked on stage in beautiful robes, and there was a couch there, and he caused her to recline on the couch, and he said something like, Princess Astra, rise, rise and float. And she rose off the couch up over his head, and he held his hands out, and she stopped, and the music stopped. And he stepped forward, and he said this awful corny thing, but it worked. He said, that young lady stays suspended between heaven and earth. I could allow her to remain there for a thousand years, should I so desire. But in the interest of your time and your patience, ladies and gentlemen, I will cause her to descend once more to the couch from which she just rose. Princess, descend. The music started up again. We had live orchestras sitting in the pit. Can you imagine a live <laughs> orchestra in a theater? Wow. I'm still trying to get over the 12-cent ticket. <laughs> <laughs> and, and she slowly descended until she touched the couch. They both took a bow, and she walked off stage. Oh, I was doomed to be a conjurer from that moment on. So I went around the theater to the alley at the back, and I saw old Harry Blackstone with his wing collar open, and uh, he looked up and he smiled at me. And I, I spoke to him, and I said, uh, my name is Randall Zwenge. And I shook his hand, and he said, would you like to look backstage? He led me through the myriad of props. I didn't know what I was looking at. I saw all the boxes and such there. I, I couldn't understand anything. He took me to the dressing room, and he taught me a simple trick, which doesn't work well over radio. <laughs> Just a little thing with a swizzle stick. And uh, 
I learned it almost instantly. The swizzle stick trick led to... Harry Blackstone directed me to the Arcade Magic and Novelty Store. He actually introduced me via a small note to Harry Smith, the proprietor, and that was all the passport I needed, of course. I was immediately a member of the magical fraternity there. I hung out there a lot. The proprietor, Harry Smith, taught me a lot of sleight of hand. He and David Simon, I guess, are the most famous of the geniuses that I've done. David Simon wrote The Wire. Right. And many other wonderful TV programs. The Amazing Randy is the debunker of televangelists and phony clairvoyants and mentalists and so Ur, forth. And Uri Keller. Uh, <laughs> I talked to a woman, a long-form investigative journalist named Sarah Stillman, hmm. who writes mainly for The New Yorker, who's uh, done stories that are simply breathtaking, focusing mainly on people who are most vulnerable to institutional malice. Hmm. And uh, the uh, heartbreaking and, and brilliant. Elizabeth Streb, the New York uh, choreographer, Brooklyn choreographer of what she calls pop action, huh. which is somewhere between modern dance and demolition derby. <laughs> and it is it is something and she is something. She's truly brilliant, very has intellectualized dance in a way that doesn't make you want to smirk and slap her but rather makes you really think about the meaning of movement and constriction of movement. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's quite wonderful. Oh my gosh. Who else? Uh, Will Allen, an urban gardener. He, he goes into the inner city and hmm. he builds gardens in very small spaces and moves them up, not out and does it at a profit and trains at risk kids and gives access to quality food in places that were you know barren of quality food the inner city is often a food desert and that his his work has been spread far and wide um oh my goodness uh, louis vanan created captcha those little codes oh yeah uh, that you, you fill out to, to tell whatever computer <laughs> that you're not a uh, robot website that you're not a robot <laughs> yeah <laughs> and uh then he went on to create duolingo the language uh, software, free language right. software, and there's there's a spoiler alert here. These things don't just do the thing that you're doing with them. Capture has a second use. Duolingo has a second use, and that's how they fund themselves. And oh, so he's, he's double dipping on human labor. That's just a, a few of them. Wow. There's, there's twelve in all. Yeah. And uh, you know, to me, one more fascinating than the last. That's great. Uh, just the last question is, um, you have kind of a lightning Gemini. round. Gemini. You have kind of a, <laughs> thank you, and good night. Uh, <laughs> you have kind of a uh, uh, a lightning round you do with each of your guests at the end. Mm -hmm. uh, and what is the, the term you call you use for that? The something well, We call it the countdown round. Right. And it's eight questions that we give the same eight questions to everybody. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's similar to what I think they call a Proust questionnaire. Mm-hmm. And they're interesting in the, for each individual. Um, they're asked to respond very quickly to these eight questions. And in the aggregate, it's fantastic to, yeah. to compare one to the other. And I've had some of the best moments on the Genius Dialogues were truly surprising answers to questions that were, you know, required very quick, yeah. you know, almost Rorschach test, pre-association response. Yeah. It's Fun. It's great. It's a great way to end this show. I wish I had 
a better way to end my show. But uh, I'll just I'll just say thank you, Bob Garfield, and I'll encourage people to tune in or download or stream the Genius Dialogues, uh, and uh, I'll have uh, links to where they can get those and uh, check out uh, all 12 of the episodes. Thank you, Mark. I really, really appreciate it. Appreciate your time, and uh, I hope to talk to you again uh, uh, in the future, especially if you guys get a second season going. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> okay, Bob. Thanks a lot. Take care. All right. Let's check out the tweet sack, shall we? First up, one of the Soundcast reviews I did on Splitsiders This Week in Comedy Podcasts just this week was for the Thought Spiral Show, hosted by none other than former Succotash guest Andy Kindler and J. Elvis Weinstein. 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 I, I, they even uh, go over the pronunciation of his show in the show, and I've forgotten now. Anyway, I got this tweet from Andy the same afternoon the review came out. Bear in mind that one of the things I pointed out about the show, which is very funny, is that Andy has a little problem maintaining focus. Well, he tweeted, thanks so much. This review was right on. Plus, I, what were we talking about? Speaking of reviews, I got a note from recent uh, repeat guest and friend of Succotash, Jordan Brady, asking if I could pull out an excerpt from the coverage I've been preparing for his release of I Am Battle Comic, the excellent documentary he made about comedians entertaining in battle zones overseas. You may remember he was a guest on Succotash Chats recently. I think he was the last Chats guest, so check that out if you want. He's putting out a trailer. The movie's coming out soon. He wants to have some review quotes to go with it, so that trailer should be out soon. Look for it, and maybe there's a little quote from yours truly uh, as part of that. I got a note from Sup Doc, the great sound cast about documentary movies, featuring my buddy Paco Romain, a past guest on this show, and his co-host George Chen. This whole month of May, they've got a theme going on, their Mayhem series, featuring documentaries about true crime. That includes Tower, an animated documentary about the 1966 University of Texas uh, shooting from the clock tower. So check out SupDoc on iTunes or anywhere else you stream or download soundcasts. I got a note from our own associate producer, Tyson Sainer, who's also the host of the Antisocial Show with Hunter Block. We just featured a clip from it on our last show. And at the time, I mentioned that they had yet to get their show up onto iTunes. It had just been playing on SoundCloud. Well, they were uh, uh, they were successful in their pitch to iTunes. They are, uh, corrected that. You can now enjoy every episode of the Antisocial Show from iTunes. Lastly, and this really isn't a tweet sack thing, although I've been getting a lot of helpful emails to get this started, I am in the process of getting our very own Patreon site up and running. Now, that's a, a way that podcasts and other artists can have people support them. Uh, and by support, I mean give them some money. Since the donate button on the SuccotashShow.com page must be broken, because it doesn't seem to be working for anybody, at least I haven't gotten any money from it in a long time, and none of you are buying merch from our Suckatashery, I've got to try something else to attempt to get some bucks flowing into this sinking ship of a soundcast. So one of the things about being on Patreon is we can start to offer some premium programming for sale. I was going to put together a compilation of all the Henderson's Pants ads, for instance, as something people might enjoy listening to. So let me ask you, what sort of treats would you want to pay a little bit of money to hear? 
So we'll have a regular, you know, I'll give you five bucks a month. I'll give you a dollar, whatever, but uh, we'll put some special things up there. So I can, I can set up an interview with somebody, perhaps a past guest, uh, do another kind of visit with them or something. I don't know, whatever you want to just let me know. Okay. Maybe suggest a guest we haven't had on. You can let me know via email at marc at succotashshow.com. That's mark at succotashshow.com. And let's get this Patreon thing started. I will have a uh, uh, a link to that Patreon site soon. In fact, uh, if I can figure out how to make it work, because uh, some of this stuff leaves me completely baffled, the succotashshow.com uh, URL may point just directly to it. So I don't, I don't know. That'd be the best, right? All right, then. I guess it's time to rev up the cavalcade of gratitude to thank you all who've been so kind to tweet, retweet, forward, thumbs up, like, heart, and otherwise mention Succotash on the social medias. Right afterward, we've got a second Burst O'Durst for you as well. All right, here we go. Davian Dent, Hollywood Outsider, Salty Language Podcast, Gift of Assholes Podcast, The Slant, Podcast Booster Bot. Dr. Norman Trousers, Betty J. Bollocks, Chill Pack Hollywood, Julia Morena, Kylie Ora Lobel, Danny Lobel, Swagman Mojo King. I love that name. Swagman Mojo King. Human Echoes Podcast, Hannah Hossel Kelcher, Kevin Ryan, H. Foley, Listen Wise, Jeffrey Shaw, 20,000 Hertz, Arden Rose, Boaz Frankel, Megan Belknap, Broken Filter Live Pod, Illusionoid, Let's Chat, Super Pee Pee Time, Mimi Toll, Heroes and Coffee, Andre Radmall, Christelle D. Swenson, Pod Paradise, Prince Street Online, Being Frank with Ivan, Dave Nelson, Rob Fazio, John Piracello, Frank Branches, Goods from the Woods, I Hate My Boss, Teen Creeps, Yuka Kato, who tells me that Succotash is now available via Facebook Messenger. So uh, check out our blog site, SuccotashShow.com. I'll have a link to where you can find that on Facebook Messenger. Matt Brzezinski, Abhilash Patel, Priyat, Andrew Gulak, Convicted Pod, Hernan Lopez, Duncan Reed, Simon Rustlamb, Patrick Ford, Nerd Poker, Brian Posehn, Ice in the Face, Curtis Parvin, David K. Barnes, Laura M. Holson, Constant Struggle Pod, Good Morning You Drunks, John Hall, Christine Blackburn, Buddy The Hopcast, Sean Ellis, James Mastriani, Full Belly Laughs, Kindling, Amber Merritt, Mark Thompson, Breezy Blonde Is Not Radio, Studio, that's it, just Studio, Boo Chan, Changes in Latitudes, Casa Mirth, Casanova Frankenstein, What a Pair of Trousers, The Angry Chimp, and The Three Cuckoos Podcast. All right, enough of that. Now this. Hey guys, Will Durst here with a few choice words about President Trump firing FBI Director James Comey with all the suddenness of a bowling ball hitting a sidewalk after a 10-story drop. 
Various reasons were given for the enforced departure. Comey had lost the confidence of the FBI rank and file. He didn't do a good job. He has weird hair. He passes gas in elevators and pretends it's the old lady who did it. Atrocities were committed during the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which, coming from Trump, makes the same kind of sense as New England Patriot wide receivers complaining that Tom Brady throws his passes too accurately. At first, several White House spokespeople, including Vice President Mike Pence, blamed Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein for initiating the firing. But then the president himself told NBC anchor Lester Holt that no, he was the one responsible which sort of threw his own staffers so deep under the bus they got axle grease all over their lying little lips. Trump said one reason he fired Comey is because the guy was a big-time showboater and grandstander. Trump said that about somebody else. You can't make stuff up like this. The irony of this statement coming from President Bragadaccio should be taken not just with a grain of salt, but an entire 15-pound Himalayan hanging salt lick. Trump said the director told him three times that he wasn't under investigation, which could be construed as obstructing justice and so illegal that chuckles were heard leaking out of Richard Nixon's grave, not to mention Hillary Clinton's bunker. Having the guy being investigated, firing the guy investigating him over Russian meddling makes the 45th president seem almost as desperate as Raskolnikov, the guilty and paranoid protagonist in the book Crime and Punishment. And don't forget, he was Russian too. Coincidence? I think not. For Succotash, the comedy soundcast soundcast, I'm Will Durst. There's a second helping of Will Durst to go along with a generous portion of Succotash Chats. If that can't tide you over till next time, never fear, I have a third bonus burst of Durst coming up during Bill Haywatt's closing credits. I've already got my pass for all three days of this year's Los Angeles Podcast Festival going on in October. If you'd like to see me hosting a panel there once again this year, I encourage you to email or tweet PodFest organizers Chris Mancini, Graham Elwood, and or Dave Anthony and let them know, hey, we want Mark Hershon to host another panel. All right, that's going to do it. Help out if you can. Click the donate button or use the Amazon banner at the top of our SuccotashShow.com homepage. And if you don't have the money right now to give us a hand, goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Suckatash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, with your host, Mark Hershon. Brought to you by Henderson's Pants and... Imagine your company's name right here. Find us on the web at SuckatashShow.com, on iTunes, on Stitcher Smart Radio, on SoundCloud, and on Ha Ha Ha, the laughable app. Hey, guys. Will Durst here with a few choice words about an ugly phenomena that's sweeping the nation, and that is Donald J. Trump's presidency is making people sick. Many doctors have taken notes, and some are calling it PTSD, President Trump Stress Disorder, not to be confused with the much more serious post-traumatic stress disorder. That is a condition afflicting those that have survived a past dire or life-threatening experience. This new PTSD is a condition that afflicts people who worry about a future they may or may not survive. 
Victims find themselves alternately scared and anxious and shocked and alarmed and surprised and angry and confused and amused and amazed and nervous and depressed and worried and that close to eye-gouging panic in order to determine whether or not you are suffering from this debilitating disease, please note the following symptoms. These are the top ten symptoms of President Trump stress disorder. Number one, recurring nightmares. Most involve a second or third term. Number two, flashbacks to a simpler time when Trump was a goofy reality TV star. Number three, you find yourself saying to no one in particular, imagine the reaction of Obama had done that. Number four, a steadfast refusal to watch the news, too much like enabling him. Number five, for no apparent reason, you start screaming at Alex Trebek. Number six, whenever somebody mentions November 8th, you begin to weep and or pull hair from your head. Number seven, intense feelings of guilt for just not liking Hillary enough. Number eight, hearing his name makes you put your hands over your ears and go, la, 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 la. Number nine, you find yourself saying to no one in particular, imagine the reaction if Hillary had said that. And finally, number 10, confronted with a difficult choice, you respond, oh, what difference does it make? The hell with it. For Succotash, the comedy soundcast, soundcast, I'm Will Durst. The hell with it. You can also hear us streaming and like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Succotash Show. Email us at marc at succotashshow.com. Or call into the Succotash hotline at our non-toll-free call number, 818-921-7212. That number again is 818-921-7212. You can also upload clips from your favorite comedy soundcasts directly to us using our direct upload link at hightail.com slash you slash Succotash. Hello. Hi there. Is that Bob? Hold on. Hold on. Hello, 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 hello. Hello there. Is that Bob? Can you hear me? Hello. Hello. Can you hear me? Hello. 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 Hi there. Hold on. All right. Hold on a sec. Hi. All right. Can you hear me? I can. You can't? Or you can't? I can. Ah, okay, very good. Hold on one moment. I think of my... There we go. How's that? Magnificent. Ah, hold on. I cannot hear you. Hmm. All right, how's that? How's that? Perfect. All right. Sarkatash is produced and engineered with the kind assistance of Joe Paulino through the auspices of Studio P. Sausalito, home of the hit. Our associate producer is Tyson Sainer. Our musical director is Scott Carvey. Our booth assistant is Kenny Turges. Until next time, I am your loyal booth announcer, Bill Haywatt, reminding you to please pass the Sarkatash. Goodbye. Genius! That's what it is! Sheer genius!